Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. Today's episode is really exciting for me because one, I get to have one of my really good buddies on here, Evan Holiday. But two, if you've ever wondered about affordable housing and how that gets done, because let's be honest, it's a totally different process from normal commercial real estate development. Evan is the guy to learn it from. I mean, not only has he developed over $225 million worth of affordable housing, he also has a, his own podcast. He has his own course on how to do uh, how to develop affordable housing, which, by the way, I've heard uh, quite a few people have taken. Uh, somebody was telling me about your course the other day, uh, hmm. just randomly. I, they randomly brought it up. I thought that was really cool. Uh, so yeah, Evan, uh, you recently moved here, um, recently within the last few years, moved here from Kentucky, uh, started your own firm. Now you're developing all over Nashville and, and middle Tennessee. So that was a bit of a brief introduction, but tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, first off, Tyler, thank you for having me, man. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Excited to be YouTube live with you. This is really cool. Um, yeah. So a little background for everybody. So I really... I kind of got into real estate a roundabout way in college. I really just wanted to have impact. I wanted to, to help others. And I thought that was through the, the medical route. I'm sure like a lot of others going down the pre-med route uh, and then realizing, you know what? I actually, I want to be a developer. I saw this development going in on campus and I knew that was my passion. I knew I had to be involved in that. And from that early experience, I got to work with some great developers in college uh, we started a modular development company in college. We didn't know anything, but we just kind of started the company and ran with it. Uh, that led to really today what we do is we specialize in and build workforce affordable and really what we like to call is attainable housing, uh, something that's attainably priced for families that are really the backbone of our economy and our community and building it with quality, building it to last and also building something our residents can be proud of. Um, and we're also now getting into more mixed use development, which I'm really excited about because I think that's kind of the, the future of development. Yep. Um, I think that's where everybody really should be thinking about is say, hey, how can we make this into a more um, global community instead of just our single community or our single development or our single asset thinking about, hey, how does this play into the overall community and how can we make multiple uses out of one development? Um, we're also venturing into quite a bit of sustainability now, uh, really trying to push the envelope on sustainable and attainable housing in the same development and just working on some really unique projects, really blessed to be able to do what I love every single day and get to talk to people like you and have podcasts and just be able to jam out about commercial real estate and attainable housing. Yeah, man. It's a lot of fun. I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons I started this show is, you know, I, got so many friends that are in real estate and in very different facets of real estate. And I found myself having these conversations with them regardless. So I was like, why not just have everybody, you know, we'll just start a show. We'll just record it and start sending it out to everybody. It'd be a lot of fun to do. So, okay, real quick, let's dive into the modular or the, the prefab uh, stuff that you were doing when you were in college. I mean, talk to us more about that. That, that, form of construction, especially now considering how expensive uh, just building has become, is becoming more and more popular. It has over the last few years. I mean, talk to us about that. What were you all working on? Yeah, great question. So we actually took uh, houseboat manufacturing plants in Kentucky 
Uh, Kentucky is known for, it's kind of a mecca of houseboat manufacturing plants. Well, after 08, 09, the housing market crashed, they laid off 1,100 skilled workers at these factories. So we're looking at how can we take the same skilled individuals who know how to build a houseboat, but take that same layout even, that rectangular shape of a houseboat, but just put it on a foundation instead of put it on water. Uh, and that was really interesting concept. We actually, we, we didn't come up with the idea. We, students at University of Kentucky actually came up with the idea, uh, but we just got the rights to commercialize it and turn it into a business plan and turn it into an actual business. Um, but it was really eye-opening to me because I, I got to learn from some great people within the modular space. I also got to learn kind of the, the things you don't want to do. Uh, also being, I got to learn from some pioneers of the modular industry that got started in the 90s and got burned because it was kind of wow. too early to market. Um, but yeah, it was really interesting learning that uh, just what it takes to set up a modular factory, uh, what it takes to build the team around that. Uh, it's become more and more um, kind of systemized now with uh, the computing power that we have today. But I think it's definitely the future of creating uh, both af affordable housing and just housing in general and, and commercial development, because it's it's honestly one of the only ways, it's like that in 3D printing pretty much that you can possibly build at scale uh, with exponential returns on your time without having to you know hire hundreds of thousands of new workers that really don't exist right now in the commercial world or the construction world. Uh, and that's like our biggest problem right now is materials and labor on the construction side. So I think you're gonna see a huge uptick of people, you know, the last year of rising prices. Now people are gonna be like, hey, wait a second, we should probably look at other opportunities. And, and companies have been doing that, but I think you're gonna have a lot more money uh, and energy and investment into modular. And we're we're trying to look at that on, on some of our future developments of how we incorporate modular. Um, we'd also like to, you know, connect with some of the 3D printers too and, and learn more about what the what the heck they're doing. Like, it's amazing to me. Like I've 3D printed some like small plastic, like like 3D buildings um, just for fun. But just seeing these guys build like concrete houses in three days is just, it's mind blowing. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I think it, it only makes sense that we're going to move towards a more modular construction society anyway, right? I mean, that could bring factories back to America. But you think about how inefficient it is actually building on site. I mean, if it rains just a little bit, it stops almost every single phase of construction gets stopped by just rain. So yeah. why wouldn't we be building these houses under roof and shipping them, right? I mean, we do the same thing with Legos and Lincoln Logs. I mean, you can do it on larger scale. Um, of course, you get into, you know, shipping is more expensive, but you can build them way faster, and so you save yeah. time there. And so uh, we're actually looking at the same thing for our next version of the wash. We're looking into modular construction for that because why not? I mean, awesome. We go out and have like the next one up in like 60 or 90 days. So I think modular construction yeah. is really cool. And, and I think too, I mean, there's still some novelty to it. So it, it, it also just helps honestly create buzz around the project. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, so talk, talk to us about affordable versus attainable housing. What, what is the difference and, and what are the different kinds of, of like affordable housing that you can do? 
Yeah, good question. So there's there's many different types of, you know, there's many different definitions, I should say, of affordable housing and what it is and how it's financed. And um, so I'll, I'll go high level and then dive deeper. But really the the different types of affordable, there's what we call like your, your older uh, 1960s, 1970s dilapidated properties that haven't been upgraded. Those are naturally occurring affordable housing. Um, those are just because of their age and their lack of investment, they have to be affordable to get the renters. Um, <clears throat> then within more your newer quality, um, either fixed up or new construction, uh, there are a lot of really to make that affordable, to make it be affordable without, you know, to be able to provide that return for your investors, you have to go the public private partnership route. Uh, and so, going this route allows you to be able to partner with the city, the county or the state to basically help pay for part of your construction costs or your rehab costs. And that's really the only way that you can possibly build the same quality community as a market rate developer or you know a luxury developer, but yet offer rents that are 50 to 100% lower. Uh, and so to be able to do that, typically like what we do is we use tax credits, they pay for roughly 40% of our development costs and in return, we agree to keep the rents affordable for anywhere from 15 to 30 years. And so those, when we say affordable, that specifically means within our tax credit and public-private partnership world of affordable, that means uh, any individual making 60% of the average income for that um, city or that metro area. So for Nashville, for example, an individual, it's typically like 30, I think it's 34,000 a year. And then a family of four, it's about 59,000. So anybody within that 34 to 59,000 range, those are our target renters. Now you have basically like your housing authorities or your nonprofits that go below that, that typically serve, um, you know, the, the permanently disabled or permanent supportive housing, basically anybody making $0 up to about 30,000 a year. Um, and then anything above that is called what we call workforce housing, where it's not necessarily tax credit housing, uh, but it's a step above that where you may still need some public-private partnership, like a tax abatement or a grant, um, but you don't need as much assistance because you're getting a little bit more rent for it. Uh, so that's, that's in a nutshell, that's kind of how I like to break it down uh, with the different levels, basically based on income and then also basically how you're financing that, those projects. Yeah. So for anybody that's joining us live, if you have any questions on affordable housing or development in general, feel free to, to drop those in the live chat. We will have a conversation with you here on those. I'm happy to dive into it. Evan, will you explain how tax credits work? Yes. Uh, how, uh, how much time do we have? question. Time yeah. Have? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, in a nutshell, basically tax credits help by paying for in the tax credits we use, they pay for 40% of our costs. And really the way that works is we as tax credit developers or affordable developers, we'll go out and find a site, we'll get it under contract, we'll make sure that site scores well for uh, whatever the application is that they the state agency puts out every year. So there's a state agency that's in charge of creating affordable housing and they're in charge of the tax credits. So if they like our application and they want to award us credits, we'll get that award of credits for 40% of our cost of construction. 
and then we will actually turn around. Those, those credits do not go to pay for our project directly. We turn around and sell those credits to third-party investors, either banks or syndication groups who need to buy those credits. It's basically a dollar-for-dollar write-off on your taxes. And so banks who make a bunch of money over here from other, other income streams need to offset that uh, to pay lower taxes. So they look at saying, hey, I can basically buy $1 of credit and in return, I'll give the developer and the project 90 cents on the dollar. So if we get $10 million of tax credits, they'll give us $9 million of cash that we can go to then pay for the development. So they get tax credits for the life of the project. In total, it's about $10 million of credits in this example. And then we get about $9 million during construction that we use to help pay for the development. So, and really the, the interesting thing about credits is you take everything you know about like commercial real estate investing and you know rate of return and, and uh, return on equity and cash on cash and IRR, you take all that and you literally like throw it out the window yep. uh, because our investors don't care about that at all. They, they have return metrics, but it's all based on literally time value of money of when their credits are coming in versus when they're giving us cash equity at the beginning. There, there's no cash on cash. There's no IRR. Um, it, it's a whole different world. And they actually don't want, uh, they don't want cash flow. So we as the developer get to keep all the cash flow. We just don't get the tax benefits. So we don't, we don't get the tax write-offs. We, you know, we will do the cost segregation study, but we don't get the benefit. Our investors get 100% of that. Uh, and then they get all the tax credits. So it's a really interesting model. Um, we get to collect a bigger developer fee because of that. Uh, and also because the state agency basically says, hey, this is a long, cumbersome process. There's a lot of rules and regulations. So if you're willing to put up with that, we're willing to give you a developer fee that's larger than a normal uh, market rate development. So why would an investor not be interested in ROI or anything of that nature and just want to take the, the dollar for dollar on their taxes? Yeah, great question. So really, at the end of the day, they're, they're making a return right out of the gate because they're, they're buying credits that are worth a dollar. They're paying 90 cents. I mean, really, it, the market fluctuates right now. The market's at like 86 cents per dollar in Nashville. Um, it, it varies based on city and region and who needs credits. Um, but we're, we're giving out dollar credits and they're giving us 86 cents on the dollar. So from the very beginning, they're making returns uh, and then they're getting all the losses and depreciation. So they do have return metrics. It's just not the same way that, you know, a normal investor is going to look at cash on cash and IRR and, you know, wanting you to sell the property in five years to maximize their returns. You know, they, they don't have any of that on the sales side. They actually really want to get out of the deal once they get their tax credits and their losses. Yeah, the, the losses and depreciation was what I wanted you to really touch on because it's, it's interesting. I mean, this year was the first time that we've, we've started hearing from investors, hey, and this is on normal commercial syndications, right? Like we don't do right. anything affordable where they're saying, hey, we don't want any cash flow. We want to participate solely in a, a, huh. a higher share of the depreciation and losses. And it's because these investors have other projects that are so successful, they just don't want to pay taxes, right? Yeah. And so they'll go out and they'll do pro you know these affordable housing developments uh, with you know people like Evan uh, in order to help shield that income, which again is one of the beautiful things about investing in real estate uh, that you don't get out of any other asset class. 
Yeah, honestly, it's it's wild, especially with new construction. You basically can, uh, with bonus depreciation, you can write off 100% of your site work year one. Uh, and so that's significant. I mean, we're doing a project in East Nashville right now. We're about to close. And I think our site works like close to $4 million. So year one, they're getting a $4 million tax write-off. And year one, they're probably going to put in, you know, the first year of construction, they're probably going to put in four or $5 million of their cash equity. So they're literally going to net a zero on their taxes. I mean, they're not even making any money. They're just putting money into the deal. Um, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, we had a, uh, I mean, the, the just the write-offs and appreciation, the power of that alone is, is outstanding. We had a client build 144 apartment units down in Brentwood. And the first year they cash flowed over a million dollars and they were able to show a half million dollar loss. So, you know, yeah. obviously that's going to carry on into year two. Well, they also have more depreciation and losses for year two. So then that carries into year three. I mean, it's, it's, we talk about this on our Wednesday uh, live streams with, with underwriting because we always show cost tag alongside our underwriting projects. Uh, it's, it's amazing how powerful that can be. So, so walk us through the process of doing an affordable development. So, you know, are you going out and sourcing these sites? Is the government bringing you sites? I mean, let's, let's assume that, that the audience has no idea how affordable housing works. Yeah, good question. So really from the beginning, we, we take a kind of a, an A to Z developer approach where we pretty much do everything. So we, we go, we work with brokers, um, we've worked with Tyler before, um, and we, we basically scour a region that we know we want to develop in. Uh, we figure out what the certain metrics are. Like we look at the, we look at the income growth. We look at the rent growth. Uh, we look at the population growth. We look at certain job drivers, um, and we figure out based on that, which markets we want to be in. We also take into account kind of an intangible that most of your other developers that don't do affordable may not look at or won't look at at all actually. And that is, do cities actually support affordable housing? Uh, because a city could have all the demand in the world, but if you don't have city leaders and city council members who support affordable housing, then you might as well just you know pack up shop and move on because you really can't get much done within the affordable world without political support, number one, and number two, financial support from your local government. Uh, so Tyler, you and I have talked about this. That That's so important to have your council member on board with this because it's really like, it takes a village to get these deals done. Uh, that's why I really, I seek out council members who are 100% supportive and understand the need for affordable and how it's gonna actually benefit the people that they know and they talk to every day in their community. Um, so that's one of our biggest criteria. So then we work with brokers, we find off-market deals, um, and we get a site under contract. From there, we're, we're basically doing our site feasibility. We're making sure our numbers work, we're making sure the politics are there, and then we're making sure um, the financing, there's a path to financing uh, with tax credits. There, we use tax abatements where we ask the local government to basically lower our taxes for 10 to 20 years, uh, and then also make sure our debt and equity are, are lined up. Uh, and then finally, we want to make sure, obviously, the site plan works. You know, we have enough acreage. We're not like building on top of a hill. And if we are, we're making sure we're planning for that. Um, 
and making sure we can fit the number of units and it doesn't cost us too much to build those units. Uh, and so that's really our, our site feasibility stage. And then after that, once we pass all those hurdles, then we move on to basically developing the plans or rezoning the property if it needs to be rezoned, uh, basically entitling it to allow for 200 plus units or whatever our community is. Um, so once we entitle it and zone it, then we go through with our architects and engineers, basically build out all the plans. Uh, that's probably the most expensive thing we have to do before we, we actually close and start construction. Once we have our plans fully built out, then we're going to look for debt and equity. We go to the market, we talk to 10 to 20 different groups and basically shop around and find the best groups for our deal. At the same time, we are submitting our plans to the city for permits and they're basically reviewing our plans making sure everything's up to code, making sure they agree with everything, make sure they're happy. Um, and that takes a significant amount of time. So while we're doing that, we're going through our financing, we're making sure all of our numbers are in, in line. And then also if we need any public support, we get that as far as the tax abatement or different grants. Uh, and then finally, really one of the last steps is once we have all of our ducks in a row, then we make sure we have our tax credits and any of our financing from the state housing agency lined up. Um, so we need to apply for those grants and then and then get awarded. And then once we get that award, then we make sure our GC is lined up. He has good costs. He knows what it's going to cost to build this. And then he's ready to pull the trigger and start construction. And that takes, construction takes about use of dirt all the way through to uh, getting hundred percent leased up and, and being able to provide attainable housing. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, okay, cool. Well, that's, that is a hell of a process. We're gonna have a lot to unpack on that. <laughs> I wrote down a bunch of questions. looks like Danielle has a question too. Um, she's asking, so in this example, you're giving, you're setting aside a hundred percent of the housing for affordable rents. Yes, that is correct. So that's a great question actually. So it's interesting the way the tax credit program is set up. Uh, it's basically encouraging 100% affordable development. Uh, and so that's, we're basically catering to the program and catering to our investors. Our investors prefer 100% affordable, uh, but we will do, like we're working on one right now where we have one part of it, affordable mixed use, and then the other part is market rate. So, and it's all within the same city block. So within that one block, you have people making zero income all the way up to people making, you know, hundred percent or more market rate incomes. So what, what do you think is, is better? Do you think, um, these more mixed income communities are going to be the future of affordable housing development? Do you think that they're going to continue on with more of these hundred percent affordable developments? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's bizarre because the way they set up the program and without getting into way too much, you know, um, mind numbing detail, uh, basically they set up the program. They thought they set it up. It was back in 1986. Uh, they thought they set it up to encourage mixed income, but in reality, almost nobody does tax credits and does market rate units in the same development or the same finance development. So, I think for now, until they change the program, I think the best way to do it is have within one master development. Like if you're thinking about a city block or, you know, a 10, 20 acre master development, figure out how to do part of it as affordable and part of it as market rate, given that's what the financing markets 
will will allow, and that's what they prefer. Uh, so until they change the tax credit program, and I think it's necessary. I think they need to look at more mixed mixed income, mixed use. I think they need to be encouraging a lot more of that uh, instead of these, you know, 100, 200 unit affordable only developments. Um, we do those developments, but we typically try to, you know, include mixed use, include some other component into it because um, you really want to mix different housing types. You want to mix different income levels. You want to mix different uses. I think that's the ideal way to develop a community. What do you think would uh, would help promote that a bit more? And why do you think that m- most developers kind of avoid the market rate alongside affordable? Yeah, good question. Um, I, I think it's really, honestly, it's going to have to come at the federal level because that's where the tax credit program is set up. Um, I think it's just going to have to take more leadership of, you know, good development, like like people like ULI, like, ULI understands and and individuals like yourself, Tyler, and others that are in ULI, you know, we understand that good development includes multiple uses and multiple income levels. Um, And I think it's just continuing to tell people at the federal level that that's how it's done. Because I think certain local grants, like there's grants here in Nashville, there's grants across the country that encourage mixed use, mixed income, uh, and those help. But I think you're not going to see massive change in the way people do affordable developments until you see that change at the tax credit level because that's 80 to 90 percent of your capital stack right there so until that changes i feel like most people's behavior is not going to change tremendously well yeah i mean think about it you're you are competing with market rate developers who can afford to pay just as much if not sometimes more or maybe a little bit less depending on how tax credits are set up than an affordable housing developer can, right? And so without those tax credits, you can't afford to buy land at market rate and then build at market rate <laughs> only to lease up at b- well below market rates. Those, those metrics just don't work. So you're right. I mean, I think um, it would be interesting to see. I mean, I feel like a lot of local governments talk about, I mean, I feel like I've, I've seen this in Nashville for sure, you have politicians who will say we need more affordable housing out of one side of their mouths, and then on the other side, they they won't rezone properties for higher density, or they won't yeah. push through for any any other programs that will help affordable housing. And so it's like, man, it's it's such a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of personality going on here, where you know, yeah, we want affordable housing, but we don't want it in our neighborhood. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> not how it works. <laughs> and also yeah. the affordable housing developments now, I mean, like what you did, your your deal, the paddock at Grandview, some of these other projects that you're doing, I mean, they look market rate. I mean, they look absolutely yeah. amazing. Yeah, I think you're spot on with the the whole like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Like it's it's mind blowing to me how often I run into that, not just from politicians, but also community leaders and and, and people living in the community. It's like they're like, hey, we need more affordable housing. Why aren't people building more affordable housing? And then groups like us and others who are trying to say, hey, you know, we build affordable housing. We'd love to do it in your neighborhood. And they're like, they're like, oh, no, no, not in our neighborhood. Like, go Not put you. it over there. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's this whole like defensive mindset where people don't want change, but yet they want to complain about the bad situation that's going on for a lot of families that don't have access to affordable housing. Sometimes, I mean, a lot of times, Honestly, it's, it's, I think it can be related to like 
you know, we've all had some occurrence, uh, you know, somebody in our lives that has been affected by a disease or something bad um, health wise. And so I think it's kind of like that, like we all kind of have, we probably have a couple of people we know that are in dire need of some affordable housing or are really struggling to make ends meet because they're paying way too much money for housing. Uh, and so we're all running into this more and more, especially today, especially, you know, post pandemic. Um, and I think it's going to take like some really strong leadership for people to say, Hey, actually, you know what? We do need a, a more density. We do need more units. We do need affordable housing. Uh, and, and like you said, I mean, just upzoning properties, even if, even if somebody, the, the current owner doesn't need it or want it, it's like, just bring more density to the corridors, um, where it's already built for that density. Uh, and to, to stack on that, there's a, um, there's a book, Golden Gates. It is one of my new favorite books. I just recently read it. And it's all about how, um, how California has just struggled with affordable housing. I mean, they're literally in the worst situation of any state in the country. Uh, and they've done, they've tried to solve, but they've just done, you know, it's, it's kind of like one step up, two steps down. And it's a really interesting book of how they wanted to encourage, you know, density on corridors. They wanted to provide all this funding, but really they, they provided like billions of dollars in funding, but somebody did the math. They're like, if you estimate a certain amount per unit, it's like, we're going to need literally $500 billion, which is like three times the state budget in one year. And we're going to need that every year. And so you can't just throw money at it. You have to actually make changes as far as the way we think about how we design our cities. I just bought that on Audible, by the way. That's what I was doing here on my phone. <laughs> I, 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 that's great. I didn't even know. Uh, I, that's one thing that we've got to start doing on this show is start getting book recommendations because that's awesome. Like that's uh, Walkable City by Jeff Speck was a, a groundbreaking, like yeah. life-changing book for me. And by the way that you were describing, you know, that, that book, it sounds like um, it could be a very similar thing. So by the way, guys, that is Golden Gates Fighting for Housing in America by Connor Doherty. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. They've got it on Audible. Um, I mean, I, look, Evan knows what he's talking about. I would highly recommend getting that book. <laughs> uh, speaking about density on the corridor, Nashville recently over the last year or so, actually, or two years, has, did actually do something very positive in terms of density along a corridor on Dickerson Pike in East Nashville, my neighborhood. Uh, they did the Dickerson North and the Dickerson South corridor studies and actually went through and increased the allowable heights and therefore density um, along the corridor in order to kind of accommodate what the neighborhood sees as the future potential for that um, side of town, which has sparked a significant amount of development over there, which is only going to make the neighborhood better. So, you know, it's it's exciting to see what's going to come from that um, just with the city kind of almost taking their own initiative to go through and say, hey, you know what? This is a corridor where we can actually afford to need high density. Let's see how that works out. We've got a question here uh, from Damien. Mr. Holiday, how many team members are on one project throughout your planning stage dealing with all the different engagements? You've got a relatively lean team, right? Yeah. Yeah. And great question, by the way. So a little bit of background on our team. And then also we have JV partners per deal. Uh, and then also we rely on consultants. So we have on our development team, uh, it's myself and a development coordinator. Uh, and then we are, 
we have one other development coordinator coming on in about a, I guess next week. Um, so that's our that's pretty much our development team. It's myself and two development coordinators. Uh, we're actually actively looking for an experienced developer because we have more deals than we have bandwidth. Um, but as far as really what it takes, so that's our development team. We out, we also have uh, my assistant who she actually helps tremendously throughout the development process, just from an organizational standpoint. Um, and then outside of that, I mean, really we're we've found our core group of design consultants and third-party report consultants uh, and basically people we work with over and over again so once you find your core group uh, it takes a little while to kind of find who you gel with who you work with well um, who gets stuff done honestly Uh, and once we found that group of the architect the engineers the civil engineer the landscape architect the rezoning specialist the attorney Um, those are all people that we work with every deal. And basically as soon as we know we have a deal lined up, really the first people we talk to are anything that have to do with rezoning. So civil engineer, architect, um, sometime landscape architect or any like political consultants. So we engage those consultants per deal. Once we know it's a go, once we, once we believe we have the political support and the financial path to closing. Uh, and then after that, we're, we're finding our JV partners or our investors or a combination of both. Uh, so we, once we know a deal is a go, we'll, we'll typically spend like call it 50 to hundred grand of our own initial capital on a deal before we, we know it's a go. Uh, and then we'll bring in our impact investors. So these are investors that are looking to have impact with their capital um, and be a part of attainable housing. Uh, and so we raise capital from our impact investors, typically anywhere from one to $3 million. Uh, and that helps us pay for the architect, the engineers, the, the, um, the land deposits, many different things along the way to get these deals done. Um, and then, and then simultaneously we'll bring in our JV partners, typically individuals that can sign the loan guarantees, uh, that have high net worth, high liquidity. They help make sure the banks and the investors are happy. Uh, and they're, you know, have some guarantees behind what we're doing. And so once we have them on board, then we bring on property management groups, the GC. Um, sometimes we have construction consultants. We have Energy Star consultants. Uh, it really, it, it honestly takes a village to get these deals done. And then even, that doesn't even mention the financing side. Like we have uh, the debt team, we have the equity team. We have bonds, we do tax exempt bonds. So there's people like attorneys and consultants that specialize in how to use tax exempt bonds, um, which accompany the tax credits. I'm trying to think what else, I think that's about it, but it's just amazing. Like we get on our closing calls for deals and there's like 30 people on there. I'm like, where did all these people come from? And it really does take a village at the end of the day to get these deals done. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That was one. That was going to be one of my questions. So, how does the debt and equity work in these projects? Because you know you've got, um, and this is another thing I want to get into. You talked about tax credits. You talked about abatements. You talked about grants. So, what does your capital stack actually end up looking like? Yeah. So our our typical capital stack looks like forty percent tax credits, and we call it tax credit equity. Uh, because that's actually just cash that we're getting in return for the tax credits. Um, so 40% tax credits, 50% is a loan. So 
it's interesting because it's technically 90% loan to value, but it's 50% loan to cost. Uh, and that's because again, we're, you're significantly lower rents. So we're building a brand new building, but we're half the rents. So our loan to value is about 90. Our loan to cost is 50. So it's 40% tax credits, 50% loan. And then the last 10% is a combination of different sources. So we'll either get different like local grants, um, sometimes loans from local governments or governments. Uh, and then also we'll put in our own equity or we'll defer part of our own developer fee that can be considered our equity. Uh, and then finally we'll do, um, we can do tax abatements from the local, yeah, tax abatements from the local government. Uh, and then we can basically, by lowering our expenses, we raise our NOI so we can borrow more funds uh, in our loan. So we basically get additional loans. So, you know, on a 200 plus unit deal, let's say a pilot is worth over 10 year pilot, it's worth two and a half million dollars in additional loan proceeds. Um, so it's very valuable even to just get an abatement on future taxes uh, because it's typically one of your biggest expenses. So that's typically our capital stack is 40, 50, 10. Um, and it's really, it's really interesting deals. It's, um, it's not for the faint of heart to be able to, to put all that together, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, what's your average timeline for one of these deals? Cause it takes forever to go through a rezoning or to go through the tax credit process. I mean, what is it, what does it even look like before you start going out of ground? <laughs> uh, I usually, I usually tell people our average timeline to, to close and break ground is about two years from getting a site under contract. Uh, and so, it's just because there's so many moving parts, like like we've kind of dived into. Um, it's just so many things we have to do. From even rezoning will typically take us six to eight months minimum uh, to be able to rezone property, and then you add in the tax credit approvals and all the reports and all the third parties. We have to get permits. Our investors will not let us close without building and site permits, uh, which is kind of a, a pain as well because sometimes permit office can just be really really slow or really backed yeah. up. So yeah, I would I would typically say about two years. That's crazy. That is uh, that is a labor of love, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, Jennifer's yeah, saying man. we need more four and five bedroom units in big cities. They just don't make them anymore. What are your thoughts on that? Because we've seen we've seen a trend of, you know, hey, we're moving towards these studios and one bedrooms. In commercial, we've seen a trend of, you know, we're going down to 150 square feet per employee. I mean, it is it is starting to get pretty small. I mean. Are you seeing a demand for, for multi-bedrooms in these types of units? Yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, we've always thought about four bedrooms for families, like four bedrooms and five bedrooms for families. <clears throat> and there's definitely a need for that. I know some grants have even like put out uh, extra scoring points, basically, like an incentive if you do four and five bedrooms. Um, so I know there's a need for it. Um, I'm not sure if the person asking the question was talking about family specifically or like four to five individuals sharing a room. I think that would also be a smart way to do housing, almost like co-housing or single room occupancy housing. Um, we're doing that with a more specifically with a substance abuse recovery nonprofit where that's part of their services is we're, we're basically building four bedroom units uh, where two people share a bathroom and they all share a kitchen and a living room. And that's a way to basically provide housing and provide a community aspect for all the individuals going through the program. 
Um, so we're doing some four bedrooms, but uh, we're not doing a lot of them uh, just because really the we've seen the biggest demand at one, two, ones and twos. And if you're really downtown studios, um, but yeah, I, I think I, I agree with you. I think there's a need for it. And it is becoming tough because especially on the apartment side, you're really not seeing that anymore. Um, so I know it's it's interesting because we need more, but there's not really much incentive for developers to build it. Yeah, I mean, on the apartment side for market rate, I mean, we're looking at projects and I'm trying to figure out, okay, well, how can we get away with no three bedrooms? Because we don't even want them anymore. I mean, people just don't yeah. rent them. At that, at that price point, once you start getting up, they're going to start looking at three bedroom houses. <laughs> Um, and that ends up becoming yeah, exactly. you know, competing with something totally different. So, uh, and as a developer, you make more money on the smaller units anyway, because you can charge a much higher price per square foot and it's overall still affordable on a monthly basis. Yeah, that that's exactly what I was talking about. Like there's no incentive for developers to do it because, you know, your price per square foot on a, on a one bed or a studio is infinitely higher than a three or four bedroom. Yeah. Yeah, like significant. I mean, on a five bedroom, you might be able to get three thousand yeah. a month, thirty five hundred a month. But on, yeah. on a one bedroom, you can get fifteen hundred. And so you think about, okay, well, if I can get, you know, three one bedrooms, I'll be able to make way more money instead of one yeah. five bedroom. It's literally like I don't know, eighty cents per square foot, seventy five, eighty cents per square foot for a five bed, or you know, two dollars square foot or more for a one bed. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing how quickly the price starts to jump up. So Evan, you know, Nashville has a deficit of 30,000 affordable units by what is it? 2025. It's probably going to be a lot more than that by the time 2025 actually gets here, <laughs> considering how long it's yeah. taking everybody to build. And, and they didn't plan for Oracle and Amazon coming in. No. Yeah. That was before, that was before those two announcements. Yeah. What do you think is the future of affordable housing? I love that question. Um, I think about this a lot. I think, and that's, I think that's why I love that Golden Gates book so much because that's like the ultimate question of that book is what is the future of affordable housing? How are we actually going to solve this instead of just putting a bandaid on it? Um, and I think ultimately it's going to take way more density. It's going to take way more um, quicker to market ability to bring units and at a lower cost. So I think, those three things are really scary to a lot of people. Um, typically people living in single family homes in more urban areas um, who don't want to embrace density. Uh, I think that's one of the scariest things out of that whole thing is like, we have more people living in cities than we ever have in the history of the United States. And yet we're not building at all. You know, we're, our building is like flatline almost, but our, our urban population is literally skyrocketing. And so the only way to actually, you know, we're, we're, we're basically like trying to stay above water. We can't even stay above water. And now we're just adding more people to more cities. So the only way you can do that is literally by just adding more units. It's, it's just a supply and demand issue. But the only way you can do that is by building density. You can't solve this by building houses. You can't solve this by building one story or two story buildings, you really have to bring density. Um, and I know a lot of people don't want to hear that because they're like, well, I kind of like my neighborhood. And, you know, we live in a single family house. Um, but I think embracing the idea of density and also expedited, um, expedited permitting, lower costs, 
doing whatever we need to do to help affordable housing become a norm and not like a stigma. I think those things are really what I would point to and say, hey, if we could if we could make this the norm of like, hey, affordable housing is real, it's needed, and it's nice. Um, and think of ways to actually make it expedited and more dense. I think we'd, we'd get maybe halfway there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're, you're right, man. I mean, I, you know, just over the past year, two years, been studying affordable housing, been studying walkable cities, uh, you know, what, what makes a city great, urban development. And single-family housing is pretty much the worst thing that has ever happened. Like, like suburban sprawl is the worst thing that has ever happened to America. Um, and it's really interesting when you start to dive into that and see all of the side effects that came out of it, uh, including you know, non-affordable living, right? And it's just think about it. If you're going to build one house on one acre, yeah. you've taken one acre of land. Now the next person has to go on the other side of you and then build their place. And then you've got another acre that, you know, it's just as opposed to, you know, here in East Nashville, there's an apartment complex that has over 250 units on, I think, two acres. It's like, why wouldn't you? That makes more sense. Everybody can live in a much nicer area. You get all these walkable amenities. Why wouldn't you want to do that? And I get it. You know, you have kids or whatever, but still, uh, it's it's at least food for thought and something to think about. So, uh, Evan, what uh, if somebody is looking to learn more about affordable housing? If they want to check out your podcast, uh, your course, anything like that, how can they find you? Yeah, thank you, Tyler. Um, the the best way is starting out is uh, go to our website. It's www. Uh, did I say four? <laughs> that um, was four, yeah, four Ws. <laughs> four Ws. No, uh, just go to evanholiday.com. Uh, that's spelled holiday, H-O-L-L-A-D-A-Y. Uh, and there you can find uh, links to our podcast, Monumental Podcast. That's where we interview. Uh, we had Tyler on, well, it was about a year and a half ago. Yeah, uh, it's been a hot one minute. of the earlier episodes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, basically thought leaders, entrepreneurs, leaders, uh, real estate investors making massive change and making a monumental impact. Uh, and so you can check out the podcast. You can also check out our affordable uh, development company, Holiday Ventures. And also if you're interested in impact investing with us. And then finally, uh, our coaching mentoring program is called Affordable Development Mastery. Uh, you can find that at evanholiday.com as well. Awesome. Evan, thanks so much for being with us, man, and talking about affordable housing. That was awesome. For those of y'all that are listening to us or watching on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe so you keep getting these kinds of interviews directly to your YouTube page. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, please rate and review so that we can keep bringing this content to you all, and we will see you next week. Uh -huh.